Welcome to episode 113 with my guest, Lynn Chen. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the name you can follow me uh, at on Twitter if you uh, if you care to. Um, it's been a really, really uh, intense couple of not only days, but weeks and really, really months. For those of you that are regular listeners to the show, you know that I've been sharing some stuff um personal stuff that I've been going through and let let me actually just first read this this email that I got from a from a listener um named Sophia and she writes um regarding your interview with the social worker which was last week's episode with the uh, social worker um Ray at one point your guest suggested that he thought it might be good to talk about the cycle of domestic abuse something that I would have liked to understand better and to see from his very important perspective I wish you would have picked up on this rather than circle back around again to ask about his experience with more subtle forms of sexual abuse. It seems to me that you diverted the conversation because of the way in which his answer might have intersected with your own story. I want you to know that I believe with all that's in me that your mother sexually abused you when you were young and the pain you still feel over this, particularly your struggles over whether what you experience could be formally labeled sexual abuse or not is evident and heartbreaking. Trust me, as a mother of a son who is now a man, you were sexually abused. No question. But having said that, I would lovingly suggest that your interviews might be stronger and if you remain focused on what the guests bring to the conversation, especially if they have some particular some particular expertise. I hope you take this critique in the non-judgmental spirit in which it's offered. I hesitate to write this because I don't want uh, to think that I've caused you pain, but it's because I think your podcast is important that I take the chance. I want to see your podcast and your interview skills continue to improve, Sophia. And I wrote her back and thanked her for that um, because I think um, what she said is true. Um, I... I sensed myself doing it, and um, and I appreciate that kind of feedback from listeners because um, it the spirit of of that um, criticism is clearly one of love and support and wanting the podcast to get better. So um, um, I appreciate that, and I felt like this would be a good jumping off point to kind of talk more about what it is that I've been. Um, experiencing the last the last couple of months um i have a tremendous fear that i am too self-involved in the podcast and the interview sometimes injecting my story into things and while i know that there's a certain amount of injecting my life into it um is helpful i sometimes worry that i go overboard with it and I never know where the truth is. And one of the things that I really, really struggle with, and my therapist um, kind of alerted me to this, is that I don't trust my own integrity. And I think it goes back to being the victim of, of covert incest and being sexualized, or as you know, as, as she calls it, uh, sexual uh, abuse. Um, sometimes I call it that. 
and I'm comfortable calling it that, but I'm so afraid of being a baby, an exaggerator, all the stuff that I've talked about before on the on the podcast, but I guess I want you guys to know how heavily it weighs on me every day. I must think about it a hundred times a day. Am I throwing my mom under the bus? Am I being a bad son? Or am I... Do I need to draw stronger boundaries? Where, where does the truth lie? And nobody can answer that for me. I have to figure that out on my own. And as I was editing this episode this week with Lynn, uh, there's a moment in the podcast where she talks about being the victim of um, molestation. And we talk about that. And there are two things that happen when I'm interviewing somebody and that subject comes up. Um, let me put it this way. There are two things that can happen when I'm interviewing somebody that can trigger me. Number one is they feel really like a kindred spirit and like like I can collapse around them, even if it's somebody I don't know that well. And I know that's probably not healthy, and it's something that I probably need to work on. But as Lynn was sharing her story with me, um, even in the beginning of it, when it wasn't about that yet, there was something about her that really moved me. And you couldn't see it because it's just audio, but she was crying through most of the epi- this episode. And it moved me, and I started crying through probably the first half hour of this episode. And so when she got to the point where she was talking about being molested, um, it was overwhelming to me, the feeling inside me. Um, I couldn't I couldn't continue the interview, and I had to pause for about five minutes and ask her for a hug, and I broke down, and I just started crying on her shoulder, and she was so comforting to me, and I was apologizing. I was like, this is, you know, this is fucking weird, you know, you don't know me, and she was, you know, she was so gracious about it, and she was so nice, and she didn't make me feel ashamed at all. She actually made me feel like it was the right thing to do. Um but as I edited her episode together, I, I wanted to cut that part of it out because it embarrasses me because it looks I look so needy and I look so fucked up and so I look like a narcissist. I look like everything that I hate. And yet I know there is probably somebody out there who is going through this feeling of being an astronaut lost in space like when you think that the person who was your caregiver for 40 years really loves you and you finally wake up and go, oh my God, that wasn't love, that was control, that was abuse, that was manipulation, that was this, you know, on and on. And you begin to really respect how you feel in your body that they make your skin crawl and that when you see their phone number come up that you feel a sense of dread. When you begin to get in touch with those feelings, it's fucking overwhelming and suddenly you don't trust your your judgment on anything. You don't know where what is left and what is right, what is up, what is down. And it is the biggest mind fuck that, that you can imagine and you just want to know where the truth is. You ju- You want it more badly than anything. And so the one thing that I knew I had to do with my mom was to draw some boundaries so I could collect myself because I knew I couldn't take her phone calls. So I limited limited it to, to letters. And it's been about nine, actually it's been about a year since it's just been uh, a correspondence through letters. For the first six months, it was nothing. It was, it was I, I couldn't, 
I couldn't even write. And then I thought, maybe it'll be safe enough to, to write. And one of the things I said in my first letter was, I don't want to go over the past because she is somebody who can twist things to suit her so that she won't feel guilt. So I knew it would probably just re-traumatize me to try to go over that stuff with her. She's 85 years old. She's not going to change. So I asked in the letter, you know, I don't want to go over the past. It's water under the bridge. I just want to move forward. So my first letter to her was very polite. It was, how are you doing? How is the things at your, you know, your new retirement home, et cetera, et cetera. And her first letter back to me was respectful. And then her second letter to me, she just in the middle of this letter, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, she just threw a relative of mine under the bus, suggesting that my problems might stem from something he might have done to me when I was a child and he was babysitting because, quote in her letter, his family has a history of physical abuse. I'm comfortable being around that that person. I don't get any weird feeling being around that person. And it just, it bummed me out that she wasn't respecting my boundary of not wanting to, to bring up the past and that she was throwing this relative under the bus. So I didn't write her back because I just, I, I don't know what to say. I don't have anything to say to this person. And she's since written me twice. And the most recent thing that she wrote to me, um, where is it? She wrote, um, don't know why you haven't answered my letters, but I hope and pray you are busy and well. If I had had perfect parents, I might know what to be or do, but I don't. I can only try not to worry and be hurt. And something in me was like, that doesn't feel like somebody who cares about their kid. That sounds like somebody who is like angling to get something that they want and is like playing a, a like a poker hand. And it just, it made me so sad and my wife could see the sadness on my face. She didn't know that I had read that, but you know, I walked into the room and my wife could see the sadness on my face. And I left to go to therapy and she called me and she said, I didn't know why you looked so sad all of a sudden. And then I saw the open letter that your mom had written on the table and I read it. And, and we talked about it at dinner that night and You know, I'm in that place where I don't know, I don't know wh- where the truth is. And so I I was asking my wife, you know, what, what do you think I should do? And she said, well, ultimately, it's what do you want to do with this? Can you live with cutting this person out of your life? If, you know, if you're going to feel guilty for the rest of your life, if she dies and you, and you've cut complete contact with her, you know, but she said, she said, when I read that letter, I wanted to punch that cunt in the face. 
And that made me feel so good. It made me feel so good. And I, I had this kind of epiphany that I've been trying to have it both ways. I've been trying to protect myself and protect my mom from being hurt at the same time. And I don't think she's capable of seeing how abusive her her demeanor is. I don't. I think she's sick and she can't see it. I don't hate her. I'm not angry at her, but she she just doesn't. The last time I stayed with her, three years ago, she wanted to read like spiritual readings one morning, and this was after like her doing all these annoying, invalidating things to me. And I said, "Mom, I know you want to be closer to me, but." I have to be honest, I don't feel safe around you. And it was like she didn't even hear me. You know, you would think if a child told a parent that, they would want to know more. They would want to know, what what am I doing that doesn't make you feel safe? But it was like she just had this glazed look in her eye, like, like I'm this thing that she gets feelings from and... Only It's like she only wants to hear things from me that she wants to hear. And the things that she doesn't want to hear, she just files away, never to be thought of again. And she thinks that by sending me cards that have hearts and talk about hugs and how important you are to me, that that's going to make up for it. And I think I finally had to look at the difference between her actions and her words and decide that her actions are just too fucking painful and invalidating and i i just don't think i can i can hack having a relationship with this person anymore so i wanted you guys to know where i'm at with this i'm sure it's being exacerbated by the depression i've been going through I have a stack of unopened mail on the kitchen table that is in danger of having snow form on the top of it. I've been going to get this transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's supposed to start working after two weeks. I've been going almost five weeks now. I'm feeling nothing from it. They're telling me to hang in there. I had this thing happen two months ago where I lost vision for about 10 minutes in my left eye. lost it completely. I've been having a battery of tests done. I don't even care what the results are. I, I I haven't even called any of the doctors. It's been like a month since I got the last test done. I'm in this place where I don't fucking care. I don't give a fuck. And it's so overwhelming to experience all of these things happening at the at the same time and I'm not I'm not saying this to ask for sympathy. I'm I'm putting this out there because this is the ball of fuck that your life can become when you've experienced exploitation by a caregiver and you stuff your feelings for 40 plus years and you're an addict and an alcoholic and even though I'm sober and and I and you're living with depression this it's not clean it's not easy it's fucking hard when i wake up in the morning I am not happy that I woke up. I don't want to kill myself, but I don't want to be alive. And and I know I'm going to get through this. I'm not going to kill myself. But this is the face of depression. 
This is the face of recovering from abuse. It's fucking complicated. It's hard to decipher. It's like... I don't know. I guess I'm afraid... I'm afraid that I'm not doing this right. I'm afraid that I don't know what I'm afraid of. I guess I'm afraid I'm never going to get better. I'm afraid I'm going to lose listeners because this is going to be self-indulgent or sad. But a little voice in my head is telling me, no, you need to document this because there are other people like you and I know you're out there. I know you're out there. And I want to thank Lynn for this episode because I emailed her all of these things that I said, you know, after I after I edited her episode together and she just sent me the sweetest email back that let me know that what I was going through is okay and the way I'm going through it is okay and that I don't need to be embarrassed about leaving that part of the episode in where I make it about me. And so I guess I just want to warn you because I'm afraid of getting emails from people that are going to not like how I'm handling my life for the podcast. And I just feel like I feel like I'm in a prison of my own making. I hope this makes sense. I hope this is taken in the spirit that it's meant, which is that I just want to be understood and I want other people who are experiencing this fucking crazy, untethered feeling when you confront your past abuse. It doesn't change overnight. You don't get over it. It's a process, and it's baffling, and it's draining, and it's painful. In a nutshell, it's anal sex. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. 
I'm here with Lynn Chen, who I met briefly through uh, through Janet Varney and through her husband Abe, who uh, works at Huffington Post uh, or did work at Huffington Post with uh, with Janet. Uh, he, he works there now. Oh, he does still work yeah. there. Okay, um, I actually heard he was fired. I'm the one breaking the news. Um, <laughs> oh, Lynn is a uh, an actor, um, or do you prefer actress? Does it matter? I really don't care. Okay. She is uh, Asian-American. You were originally born in Taiwan, is that correct? No. No, where? I was born in Queens. Queens? Yeah. Your parents emigrated here from yes. Taiwan in the 60s? Yes. Okay, that was it. Um, you People would know you from a variety of things. You've been on every iteration of NCIS and Law, Law and Order, Order. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that is available. Um you were in the movie Lakeview Terrace. Mm-hmm. You played Patrick Wilson's wife. No, right? I played his next. His I played uh, Justin Chambers from Grey's Anatomy. His girlfriend. Oh, okay. I, I must have misread. This is the weird thing when I I'll, I'll read up on somebody on Wikipedia and then I meet them and then they correct me on it's about okay. half of the about half of the. <laughs> I things. love it. I love it. <laughs> um, and. You've been in a, a, a couple other movies of, of note. Um, what, what are the big ones? Saving Face mm-hmm. uh, was the Sony Pictures Classics movie that went to Sundance in Toronto. That was in 2005. That's probably what people know me the best from. And, and who did you play in that? I was a ballet dancer, uh, the love interest, a lesbian ballet dancer. <laughs> How was that? It was great. I mean, it was my first feature film, and it thrust me into this world of... Asian lesbians that still <laughs> comprises the bulk of my fan base. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with with that. Did you have a ballet background? No, I mean I I grew up at the Metropolitan Opera House because my mom was an opera singer there. Really, and my stage debut was at the Met with Rudolf Nureyev. Really, yeah, like um, when I was re- when I was five, watching him sweat on stage. But I took ballet classes, but I'm not. A ballet dancer at all, but obviously you could you could fake it enough that you gave a believable performance. Well, I didn't have to. I, there's only one like movement. Okay, and it was more like a stunt coordinator telling me what to okay. do. Than, so they covered it pretty well. They yeah. made it look like it was you. Yeah. Well, I didn't even have to dance. It was just that my my background was was I was supposed to play a dancer. I see. There was more bedroom action. Let's just say that. And and how did your experience in the bedroom uh, come? come to play in that was it was uh i'm, I'm making a joke actually um <laughs> uh, where would be a good place to start with your story I, one of the things that i really enjoy about doing a podcast is sitting down with somebody that i know almost nothing about and aside from the 10 minutes um you and i were chatting before we started r- rolling um i really don't know much about you except we have mutual friends and you seem really easy to talk to. Thanks. Where, where, where should we start? We could start with the beginning, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and and how I came to find you, which was through this podcast and uh, the fact that I'm currently. I guess this is not the beginning. This is the present when I'm talking. That's about. fine too. Starting from the present. Um, what do the, you? F- the fact that I'm currently dealing with some mental illness. Um, I've always dealt with mental illness my entire life. I just didn't know that that's what it was called growing up. Um, I've been uh, a binge eater my entire life. I didn't know that it was an eating disorder until 
maybe 10 years ago when I started to get help for it specifically. Does it involve purging as well? No, mine was just eating massive amounts of food and feeling horrible about it. Our, our previous, uh, our guest from uh, this last week's episode is, is John and Megan uh, Bremen. And Megan was the, is the first uh, non-purging uh, binger that I've ever met and she said yeah there's there's quite a few there's a lot yeah it's over it's called overeating they also mm -hmm. call it um but uh, yeah it's just pin binging so you know for me i would balance it out with anorexia mild that's mild, what she would do to mild anorexia um but and over exercising was that a part of it too or no <laughs> unfortunately no i i'm one of those people who really would love the benefits of exercise in terms of you know endorphins and all those things it's so funny because you look you look I very cannot. fit well Thank you. I um, it's been about four or five years that I have quote unquote had this eating disorder under control. I'm currently one of the ambassadors for the National Eating Disorders Association. That's great. Yeah, it's where do, you, where do you guys lunch? Amazing. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I I spoke for their their conference in L.A. a few years ago, and um, because because of my blog, I have two blogs. One is uh, called the Actors Diet, which is a food blog, and it just mm. basically shows my what I eat every single day. And the other one's a body image blog called Thick Dumpling Skin, that's more for commu the community. Um, but both are you know focused on body image and. Um, so yeah, that, that whole thing going on and, and what is, what is the gist of the food blog is to say, I'm, I'm eating health, health, healthily and with moderation. Here's how I'm, I'm doing it. It's more of, that's how it started. Actually, the reason it started was because I wanted to hold myself accountable. I really wanted to, I had been on every diet under the sun in an effort to get my eating disorder under control. It, you know, like I said, I play this ballet dancer and that's really when it got bananas for me because it was an actual job. And, you know, Will Smith's company was producing it. It was sort of a thing of like, I remember my first day I showed up, I had been starving myself, you know, for three weeks because I was jumping through hoops to get this part. And I finally got it and I show up on set and there's a gift basket from Will Smith in my trailer. And it's a bunch of cashews and chocolate saying like, welcome. And I'm like, I can't think straight. You know, I knew that this was how triggering, <laughs> how incredibly triggering. It was like such a, but I mean, you know, I was at the point where, you know, I was like about to embark on what could be the biggest career, um, make it or break it moment. And I decided to sabotage myself that entire shoot. So sometimes when I watch that movie, it's really painful to watch. Cause I remember exactly what I ate before every single really? shot because I remember like, Oh, that's the day I didn't eat. That's the day I ate too much cake that day. <laughs> like, like yeah. I'm sucking in my stomach that entire time. That's, that's what I was thinking of. And that sounds exhausting. It was exhausting. It was. And when I started my blog about four years ago, it was when my both my agent and my manager dropped me on the same day. And I had already been going, trying everything from hypnosis to raw diet, to food delivery to, you know, so much therapy um, that 
I was sort of like, you know what? I'm going to take a year off from acting. Like, I knew I could get another agent or a manager pretty easily, but I was sort of like, I don't want to have to explain to anyone what's going on. I want to get out of this industry that puts so much focus on how I look and just see if I can sort of get over this on my own without that pressure. And I stopped labeling food as good or bad. I stopped trying to control everything. And I said to myself, whatever you're going to be is okay. I was also trying to get pregnant. And um, what happened was I stopped restricting. I stopped labeling foods as junk food or bad food or anything. Um, And I gained 40 pounds initially and everyone thought I was pregnant and I was not getting pregnant. So that was a real mind fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> Would you just not say anything when they'd say, oh, what do you do? Well, everyone knew I was trying to get pregnant. So I like, see. it was basically this, this is one of these life moments where I had to really learn how to accept whoever I was in the present. Not who I used to be, not who I wanted to be, but just like who I was. So I used the blog to hold myself accountable. I didn't talk about the infertility thing. I've actually never spoken about it publicly. Um, but Are you still was, struggling to, to get pregnant? No, I, I, it's interesting. Since then, I, I have no longer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want children anymore. That's the decision. At least for now, um, I, I, don't, I don't think I want children. But um, it was... Join the club. Uh, what was that? Join the club. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, but it was it was one of those things where it, that that similar to um, it, having an eating disorder is like this image of what you have for yourself. You know, I've been with my husband for we're going on sixteen years. That's great. Uh, this year, and we're going we're celebrating our tenth year of marriage, and we just are like I, I will say this: we have such a solid, uh, solid relationship. And I can say that with complete pride because I know everything else in my life is falling apart. <laughs> but when it comes to my husband, everything is just peachy keen and I don't care who knows it. You know, I don't I don't care if people are like, oh, God, that's so annoying because I, I know sometimes like that is triggering to hear somebody um, who has it so together in one of those major life departments. But I do. And part of it is because he and I have been through so much together. Do you feel like you can collapse around him? Yes. Oh, absolutely. What's that feel like? Amazing. I mean, it took a long time to realize that, and it took a long time for him to realize that also. But we have definitely come to the point now. Can I say this? His Both of his parents are therapists. <laughs> so I, I went from a very dysfunctional family that couldn't uh, communicate at all, and I was embraced by this family that did nothing but communicate. So, oh, fantastic! It was yeah, it was pretty. What amazing. what did the what was what it, was the arc like of thinking that you had to hold it in around him to becoming the person that can collapse in front of him? Are there any seminal moments along the way that kind of opened up your mind? Did it happen by accident? Was it planned? Were you scared? Did you have fears about what it was going to be like if you let him know the real you? Did any of those fears turn out to be true? I have a gazillion fucking questions well, about... It's You know what's interesting is that much like most things that I, I've been able to overcome, um, I don't really... I can't remember one, one moment. It, what it feels like when I look back is 12 steps forward... 
50 steps back, <laughs> two baby steps ahead, and then, you know, like, until uh, eventually it became what it is today. Um, I just remember so much fighting and struggling throughout the beginning, and then one day just looking back and realizing it hasn't, It's it's been 10 days, it's been a month, it's been a year, it's been three years since things have been like that. Um, similar to other addictions I've had in the past, like with, with food. So you're talking about time passing with your addiction or with your relationship with him getting better? My relationship with him getting better of like the way that we learn to process things. Definitely in the beginning of our relationship, we were children. We were, I mean, we were still in college. Um, so, you know, learning to deal with that and life changes of, you know, graduation and starting a life together, um, we definitely were always figuring things out, but we were figuring them out together. And I think that's probably why, um, why he's, he's been able to shift and grow with me because we knew each other at moments in our lives when things weren't supposed to be set, that we knew we were on a journey already. What were some things that were key to helping your, your marriage survive you know, I don't know what you, you want to call them, tools or coping mechanisms or ways of communicating or things that you would tell yourself or he would tell himself that that helped. I'd say balance of communication. Like We're very honest with one another, but we know that there's a time and a place for it. But also, you know, there's a lot of moments throughout our relationship where um, mostly me, not him so much, but mostly me, where I feel like I'm about to lose it. So like either I'm like, there have been moments where I'm like, I'm about to binge or like, I really want to, um, I used to drink alcohol. I really wanted to drink. I really wanted to like lose my shit. And, um, in the past I used to abuse myself and he used to just sort of abuse yourself through those addictions through those addictions okay. and he used to just sort of watch me helplessly and then watch me the next day like have a hangover or a, be in a food coma or something and and be complaining and then be like what can i do to help you and me being being like oh please don't ever let me do that again and of course i'm going to do it again and then he's like why are you saying this so part of it was also me learning not to rely on him to stop me from these behaviors. What what would the binge look like on the alcohol or the or the the food? What would the feeling be in your body and your mind? What would you be feeling and thinking when you needed that oblivion? I've noticed now that the diff- the main difference between overeating, which I always do now, like I I never have a I've had so many holidays or food events, especially as a food blogger, where what I eat may be look the same as what a binge would look like, but everything, the complete difference is that mentally I don't feel guilt about it. And usually what's going through my head when I am overeating out of emotion is this underlying thought of, I don't want to feel, I don't care. Um, I don't want to be here. Usually it's, I don't want to be here. And I don't want to be on this planet or in, no, like in I just, I don't want to be in this room or I don't even know. Like, I don't even want to, I don't want to be me. I don't want to be me. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm just going to keep 
eating until I feel full and then that's a feeling I'm familiar with and then I'll feel guilty and that's another feeling I feel familiar with and then the next but day it's a feeling that, yeah exactly exactly and what's interesting is so my father passed away in August I'm sorry yeah and so that's like a whole other like ball Were you close of to everything him? no no I wasn't so there's all these like emotions coming up about that so for the first time in four years i had like a legitimate binge where it was completely emotion based like people have watched me eat probably the same amount number of times on the blog but this time it was completely different because i had so much guilt so much shame so much emotion tied into it and it had everything to do with my dad and the way my life was going and um, and that's how I knew like that life right now is a struggle. And it really frustrated me because I felt like for so long, even when things were shitty, it wasn't a struggle. And I felt like I had it together. And now I just like, I don't. You seem like you're getting emotional yeah. thinking about your dad. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about grief is that like when he died, every, I watched everyone process it so different. Um, I could have stopped blogging then and I didn't stop blogging and the outpouring from people um, who had been reading my blog for four years that I didn't even know were still reading my blog was overwhelming and so now it's like in a, in a good way in a, in a good way in a really good way and really incredible magical otherworldly things were happening um, when my father died, like I'm not a religious person at all, but there were there were things happening um, from another world that I felt like, wow, life has changed, and um, and this is I feel like I found the meaning, and here we are. Anything that you want to share in particular? Oh, like I had been really struggling. I have been really struggling with my career the last five or six years, where it felt like a cosmic joke where like everything I booked the last minute it would they'd hire someone else or some it was like I'd be on a plane with my ticket in hand and they'd be like I'd get a call from my agent and they'd be like you're never gonna believe this and I'd be like but they've hired someone else and they'd be like yeah I, I don't know how to say this but that would always be mm. the call I would get so it felt like a cosmic joke at a at a certain point where like all my friends, I was just watching their careers move up, 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 or or down, 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 down. And I just felt like I was being, I was like this yo-yo. So when my father died, what happened was he, it was very similar where he was in the hospital for two weeks. He was supposed to, it was a complete shock. He was supposed to go in for, um, for a very, not routine, but like a very, he was only supposed to be in there for a week. He ended up being in the ICU for two weeks, really struggling, and died suddenly. And that whole time that I was there watching him struggle, I kept saying to him, even though he couldn't talk back, like, show me that perseverance is worth it. I need to know, like, that that's the meaning of life. Um, and literally the moment he died... I was outside my house. I saw these two deer and one of them sat next to me. And 
for some reason I knew it was my dad or, or something. I had this conversation with the deer <laughs> and I, and I said to it, um, I need to know that I, that, that same thing. I said, I need to know that the perseverance is worth it. And I heard on, on the radio, the classical music station was on. It was a piece I had played, uh, when I was a child, um, that was really hard, but I learned to master it and it was beautiful. It was a Beethoven piece, pathetique. I pull into the driveway. I go inside. Two minutes later, my mom comes back from the hospital telling me my father had just died, that she had just gotten the call. And I remember thinking, like, that can't be because if that's the meaning of life (laughs) that you just give up, then that's a pretty shitty lesson. That's a pretty shitty reality. And my mom Meaning, Meaning that your dad had given up and died? Yeah. Like, I, I, I... Did the deer thing happen before you heard this song on the radio? Right before. Right before. So you get in your car, and then you hear that song, and then you and find And I out. think that, and yeah. So I was sort of like, oh, my Lord. Um, so what happened was... Had you persevered in learning that piece of music? And Yes. Okay. Yes. But that didn't occur to you at that moment. No. Um, so then I go... I go to his mass the next day. My mom is very Catholic. My father was not. Well, just I, I just have to interrupt. What was the deer like? What was it looking at you when it was sitting next to you? What was... I have pictures. I, I the weirdest part was that I had no cell service, yeah. so I like and I'm I take pictures of everything because I blog. So I just I was trying to call my husband to be like, "There's a deer sitting next to me right now." But like he how close? Like literally right next to you? Like, he was like right next to the car. Yeah. Like just sitting there. Um. So what happened the next day was I went to Catholic Mass with my mom, who's very Catholic, and um, I had been there a week before. I'd grown up Catholic, but was not very religious. Um, And I'd been there a week before praying for my father to get better, half-heartedly, because I really wasn't, uh, I really didn't believe in God. So what I did was I sat there at my father's Mass, and I said to God or whoever, I said, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I know I'm not supposed to test you, but um, sort of at my, like, this is it. This is the moment where you need to, you need to prove something. You need to like show me a sign, a tangible sign. And um, because I'm, I'm very low right now. And, um, and if you don't, then, then I know there's no meaning and and we're all going to die. And my dad's like somewhere caught somewhere and and none of none of these lessons i've been learning the last couple weeks mean anything um and what happened was the preacher showed you his balls (laughs) um that would have been very strange um if the preacher had done that no he was he was my high school uh director who was the reason i became an actress i had no idea he had like was even religious he was, he had become, he had, be, I guess he wasn't a preacher, he was a deacon. And he um, worked now at my mom's church. And he gave this whole speech. At first, I didn't even think it was him because it had been 15 years or, yeah, 15 years since I had. So you're sitting in yeah. church, you think that thought, you say that thing to God or the universe or whoever. And then at what point do you recognize this is your. You say your drama teacher from yeah, high school? Yeah, my drama teacher in high school who was the reason I became an actress. Um, 
I just I didn't even realize it was him. I just thought, man, he sounds a lot like Mr. McLaughlin. Um, and I thought, you know what? That's enough. I'm going to mm-hmm. that that's enough of a sign for me. I'm going to go home. I'm going to watch the old episodes of uh, the tape of me in the pajama game, which my dad taped um, <laughs> and see if he says something and maybe I'll figure something else out. And I, um, I went up to thank him afterwards because he had aged a lot. I didn't know. And he took my face in his hands and he said, Lynn, I am so sorry. And I like I felt this emotion come over me, this incredible sense of like peace and grace and calm. I don't even think he was feeling it. I don't think my mom, who's really religious, was feeling it. Nobody else was feeling it except for me. This moment of connection where I just was like, this is my dad. This is the moment. He's telling me everything's going to be fine. Keep going. You're, you're going to be fine. Um, wow. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, I, like, I, I, I remember my, my mouth was like on the floor and I had this out-of-body experience where I could see myself and I was like, Lynn, close your mouth. <laughs> but I couldn't. I just had my mouth open because it was just this, mo- this, this moment that I had never felt before. So the weird thing now is that I've had very few of those moments. That's just one e- example of, of many, many things that happened right after his death. Um, and by the way, that's what, when I experience th- the universe loving me or God or whatever it is that's out there, I feel a sense of peace and, and grace. Yeah. I don't know any other way to put it, but I don't question where I am at that moment. And it's like, oh, okay, I don't feel like I'm three steps behind everybody else. Yeah, I mean, like, it it, it was such a incredible, magical experience that, like, it was addicting, you know? Like, that whole experience of not only... Um, bonding with my family in a way that I had been trying to get at for 35 years, all coming together with my father's death. Um, suddenly I'm back at my life with my life in LA. It's pilot season. My life is normal, but it's not normal. Um, so it's just a really strange, weird time where like, Things just, and now I I sit here and I'm like talking about it and I know it happened, but at the same time, I'm sort of like, did that really happen? Did it? Because it almost feels, it feels ridiculous when I sit and talk about it now because my life just, everything is the same except my dad's not around. And, you know, when, when someone first dies, everyone appears out of the woodwork. But now it's like everyone is gone. And the same time he died, I lost my therapist of five years. Like I had already stopped seeing her for two years, but she was someone who was like, you can call me anytime. And I thought I had, like I said, I thought I had my shit together. I had needed an eating disorder special specialist for years. And suddenly I was like, um, my father just died. I really need you. But she stopped private practice, so she could not be there for me anymore. And so I had two huge losses simultaneously. And it's just such a, I don't know, like, no, like everyone gave me a book and I started reading like 
the first 20 pages of all of them. And then I just stopped because I don't think anyone can give you a book <laughs> to help you figure out what, how to, how to feel during this time. Ooh. <laughs> Was there a physical sensation in your in your body, your mind, your your heart? Do you feel scared? Do you feel abandoned? What what what? It's all of the above. It's every. It's I. F the weird thing is that I feel like I. It, it's a very familiar feeling. It's a very familiar feeling that I remember feeling a lot, especially growing up, of um, feeling like I was alone, that nobody loved me. And it, it almost felt like all of the coping mechanisms that I have had for so many years that have worked for me just suddenly didn't work or I didn't even want to like go about doing it, using them anymore. Um, all the same things to be grateful for that gave me so much joy just a few months ago so easily suddenly like it, they just had no power or meaning um things that just made me happy just weren't making me happy things that made me miserable or making me more miserable and sometimes it didn't feel like it made sense because like it had nothing it felt like it had nothing to do with my father really even though I think it does have everything to do with him. Um, because when he first died, it was very tangible. It was like just wanting him to be around and knowing he's not. Um, and feeling like I lost... I, was, I feel like I was robbed. Like I said... Um, How old was he? He was 71. My parents had bought a place in um, in Orange County, and they were supposed to move there, like, now. And last year, they were here buying it, and I didn't see them at all because I was going crazy on pilot season. And my dad kept saying to me, we'll have time. This is my dad is my parents are like the most supportive of my of my career of anyone. Um, so they just know how it is. And they were like, it's fine. You never know. Go go do these things. And I missed out on so much. And I I always felt like one of the reasons I accepted and embraced the idea of them coming to live here, which I never would have accepted and embraced um about 10 years ago when we were not getting along uh, was the fact that I knew we weren't going to have kids. So I believed the universe was giving me this gift of my parents coming to move to Orange County where I could see them. And they were both retired whenever I wanted, whenever I was feeling bad about my career or, or when I had free time, we could just explore life together, be retirees together, you know, have fun together. And, um, I think that's a that's one of the reasons why right now is so hard for me because it's just a reminder they're not here and 
So your mom's not going to come out here? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, there's no reason for her to be in a huge house by herself in a community she doesn't know. So, I mean, that's the other weird thing is that, you know, as wonderful as my relationship is with my mom now, you know, we had many, many, many years of struggling, as did, you know, me and my brother, um, who I am close with now, too. But it's it's sort of like you go back to normal, but everything has changed and you still want that connection. But that connection was all during such a time of trauma. So you don't really want that back. (laughs) It feels really fucked up (laughs) to want that back. Um, And that's the other weird thing is that like this kind of loss is so strange because with any other type of loss, you don't want to, you don't, if you don't, you don't want to remember, you don't like, if you break up with somebody, you don't want to like sit around thinking about them all the time. You move on. But with the loss of a parent, it's, you don't want to move on. You want to keep remembering them and you and want to remember so them for, for the best things and not the worst things, but those worst, those bad things still come up. They say sometimes too, that it's, it can be even more difficult for a parent that you had a complicated relationship with or someone that you weren't necessarily that close to because then there's that feeling where you start to blame yourself for have, not having had a better relationship right. with them. Right. Did you go, through I mean you talked about it a little bit but did you go through blaming yourself or were were you just kind of mad at the universe for being dealt this hand the latter yeah i have a feeling i'll probably go through blaming myself in uh, in the future <laughs> mm-hmm. but um no i i feel like yeah i feel like like i said like i was robbed of what the next, like, I feel like I should have had the next 20 years to really get to know my dad. You know, I think that, I think that sums up some of our biggest emotional difficulties is getting past that feeling that we've been dealt a shitty hand and to not take it personally because it's so personal. Yeah. It's to nothing is more personal. This feels good. <laughs> it does feel good. I, I it's, it's amazing what a good cry will do. And I've been experiencing that a lot, which is the amazing thing about right now is that I have set up sort of this community of friends and even strangers who I feel comfortable enough to break down like this in front of because it's safe. And, you know, that's not to say that I don't get my share, especially putting myself out there online of really negative um, abuse. But for the most part, this sort of thing is what I feel like is getting me through it and is helping others get through it. Um, I just notice the older I get, the the more I'm crying, you know. <laughs> like like when I was a child, I would I would get hit for crying. Really? Yeah. I mean, like 
I would, I would, it was not okay to show this kind of emotion. Is, is that something that is more specific to, to Asian cultures or is that just specific to your family? Um, I think it might be, I think it's an Asian thing. Because I've heard uh, yeah. other uh, friends of mine say that, 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 that it's really frowned upon that showing that weakness because it, you know, can be used against you. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of like, don't you dare cry in front of me. Um, oh, that makes me so sad. Yeah. It's so it's so important for little kids to be able to collapse and feel protected. Well, do you remember any, any seminal moments where you wanted to collapse and you couldn't and what was said or what it was about? Yeah, I mean, there was lots, lots of times growing up where... Um, I was called a crybaby in school because that's where I went to unleash all of my burdens. Um, but I couldn't really talk about the seriousness of what was actually happening. And, um, and so people would just call me a crybaby. And I remember there was one moment where I actually had a social worker had came to the house and my family was even my brother who is like a punk like kid who was always like rebelling against my parents himself. I remember him saying like, that's what you don't do, Lynn. You don't air your dirty laundry. Um, like it's, it's fine if you, if you um, go and cry and don't talk about it, but don't bring us into it. I mean, that's even happening right now where like, as we speak, as we sit here, that like I sometimes wonder like how my brother and my mom will react to this. Have the decency to feel in isolation, right? <laughs> don't feel it. Don't feel in front of others. Uh, what What was it that you were crying about as a kid that that you were taking to school? I you know mental, physical, sexual abuse um, as a child. And knowing, I knew as a kid, like, I've been dealt a shitty hand. Was this, I knew that. Was this all from one particular person? It, all over the place. Oh. Um, and just sort of like a, you just have to accept it, but don't talk about it. Um, I, I've been going to therapy for a long time. I remember the moment where I, I knew I needed to get help <laughs> was when I was watching... This is embarrassing. I was watching Melissa Etheridge's video for Come to My Window. Mm -hmm. Is it Juliette Lewis? I believe it's Juliette Lewis. Like, she's in a mental institution. <laughs> I think that's the video. And um, I remember watching her and thinking, I know what that feels like. And that's when I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm crazy. I went to go see Mad Love. You? I was 15 or 14. I saw Mad Love with Drew Barrymore and Chris, Chris, Chris O'Donnell. And uh, I saw it with my friends and I remember them saying, she's crazy. But me thinking, I know what that feels like. And that's when I said to my family, I need help. And they just sort of let me, they, they let me go get it. They didn't want to talk about when did the happened. social worker come how old were you that was before that, that was uh that was junior high okay. i was like 13 yeah what had you told the social worker i told her that i had been hit and so but then you know my family was sort of like 
what the social worker is picturing is very different from like the spanking that you get. But at the same time, I was too old to be getting hit at that time. And it really drove a wedge between me and my mother for many years because she was sort of like, you've, you've brought shame upon this family. Like you've opened up, you've opened, you've made us vulnerable. You've made, you've made me look like a bad mom. Um, even though everyone does this. And she's right. Everyone hit their kids well, that she it, knew. Would it be fair to say, though, that had your mom, had there just been the spanking, but there had also been emotional welcoming and validation and no sexual abuse and no verbal abuse, you might have been able to roll with the occasional spanking? Yeah, possibly. I mean, that's... A lot of times I think we we want to say that a specific event or events have to reach some certain standard for us to have viable, valid pain about them, when in reality everything contributes to it. And some of it doesn't have anything to do with the the people that contributed to it in other ways, but you can't sort that all out when you're a kid. Sometimes all you know is what you're feeling is super intense and it all feels like it's coming from what happened to you five minutes ago from, you know, your brother doing something, punching you in the head or, right. or whatever. Right. Um, it doesn't, and that's why, that's why it makes me so angry when I, when I hear stories about kids whose parent, who try to open up and their parents shut them down because it's like the most important thing you can do and yeah. you're wiring that kid to do exactly the opposite. You might as well just give them an addiction and say, go start working on this. And, you know, that's that's part of why I started that other blog, Think Dumpling Skin, was because... I why think, do you call it that? Um, because I it's it's specifically for Asian Americans to know that they're not alone in this in our community it is okay to tell one another things like you're fat you're skinny and then just leave it at that or like you have a problem but don't you know don't process it with me um grow a thicker skin that's sort of what you're saying in 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 the community it's believed that that's okay but you're saying that's not okay we're saying it's not okay and that we all are learning to thicken our skins but we have to know that we're not alone um because there's so many especially young girls who write into us who tell us they have eating disorders and their family won't accept it like they're just like you don't have an eating disorder you don't need to go talk to a stranger we don't need to pay a stranger for that um so please just deal with it and i love the idea being that a stranger can't possibly connect you any deeper than a relative can yes that yes. that's the fatal flaw in most sick family dynamics is because yes. i'm blood related to you a stranger can't help you any more than i could right so that is the point that was that was what started that whole uh, that that whole. Cycle. What did it feel like when you when you went for help when you were fifteen? Was it a, a 
therapist? Yeah, I went to go talk to a therapist. What'd that I feel went, like? It felt good. It felt good to have somebody to talk to who just listened to me. And I Did you hold anything back or did you let it all hang out? No, I let it all hang out. How did that feel? It felt great. It felt really, really, really how, good. How much of it did you think was your fault? Or did you not I feel like any? It was my, I didn't think it was my fault. Oh, you were steps ahead of many, <laughs> many others. Well, I had like read a lot of Judy Bloom <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that. It was more like, and you know, I, I feel like this is like the theme of my life where I felt like I, I tend to be very honest and I, maybe I feel like I overshare sometimes. So a therapist was really good for me in terms of being able to talk to somebody and not have them hold it against me or stop talking to me, you know, when I was a or kid. Or go, was this, is, like, this is too this intense. This is too much. Yeah. I lost a lot of best friends. Uh, throughout the years and I sometimes it could have it, maybe it wasn't because I overshared but maybe it was and sometimes I, I, I still it's wonder. so shaming it's so shaming when you do open up to somebody and they can't handle it and they don't know how to tell you that they can't handle it so it makes you feel like you're you know Freaky deaky. Well, because most of the time, and this is something I've learned with my husband, you don't actually want them to fix it. You just want them to listen. Yeah, you just want someone to feel heard. And so they don't even have to actually say anything. Um, But people often feel, especially at that age, like you need to do something. So it just, it's too weird. You know, I think 90% of the activities I engage in in my life can be boiled down to just really wanting a hug just really wanting somebody to look me in the eyes and to see me and to accept me as I am and to say I love you I'm not going anywhere yeah I think the I'm not going anywhere is is important it's really important like sometimes I think that that's what I wanted really when I wanted to have a kid and I learned through my years of trying, I really actually didn't want a kid. I just wanted something to be certain in my life. You wanted to create stability? Yeah, I wanted to create stability and something that for the rest of my life was tied to me through love that could never, ever go away. Um, that might have been disastrous if you yeah. if you hadn't got your shit together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because then you become that parent that devours their kid. If if you can't if you can't find it in yourself to always know to put your kid's needs ahead of yours, you know. And because when we're in our sickness, I think I always knew on some level that I wouldn't be able to put a kid's needs ahead of mine. Mm-hmm. That I was too much of a of a, a, a narcissist or too emotionally immature to to do that. And and maybe because I saw it happen in in my life, but so many parents walk into having kids thinking about what they're going to get from it. Right. <laughs> Which is, right. while, yeah, you're certainly going to get something from it, a lot from it, man, I think the mindset needs to be, I, I want to bring this little person into the world because I want to give to it. Right. Right. And... 
I think there was a moment where I, where I realized what it would take to have a baby. Um, cause at that point it was like, you can do IVF. Congratulations. You can do IVF. And knowing what it would take, the commitment it would take and that the percentages still weren't a guarantee. There was something about that whole process, uh, thinking about the whole process where I realized I don't want, I don't want for the goal to be, because I heard this so often from other people in that community. Once I get pregnant, everything will be okay. Once I just, <laughs> once I, once I get this baby, everything will be fine. That is so much to put on a child. Cause I work with a lot of children and I know there are going to be pains in the asses and there's going to be lots of problems. And I don't ever want to look at this child and think you weren't worth all of that. Cause I know that there will be moments like that. And I just, I think you gotta, you gotta didn't want that. expect that they're not going to ever want to wear a blue shirt or have their food touched <laughs> or, you know, the, all these idiosyncrasies that, that little people have that, not only do they have them, but they shriek about them. Yes. Well, I also realized in a, I took a year off to just sort of deal with what was what life was giving me and not what life wasn't giving me, which was not a that that's not a good way to live is to focus on everything that life is not giving you. I was very miserable, and um, so instead I started saying yes to like all these indie films that I had always been saying no to because I was afraid that I wasn't going to have enough money to. Uh, make SAG to keep my maternity <laughs> coverage and all that other stuff. I started saying yes to things. I started traveling because before that I had been always having sex on a schedule, trying to get pregnant. And I had the best year of my life. And I think at the end of it, that's when my husband and I were sort of like, I don't know if we actually want to have children I think we just liked the idea of it. And suddenly we were aunts and uncles to, and, and had, all of our friends had children. And it was really kind of nice to just be there with them and then go home when the problems arose. <laughs> there is something so nice about that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and like my, my brother has, has four children and I love them and I love spoiling them. But I love not having to worry about where they're going to go to school and all that other stuff. How are we going to afford a house in the school district that has the good school? Yeah. There's, there's a part of me that... We're upside down on our mortgage. I don't, I don't want those problems. My boss is a prick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because everything, you're always going to have problems in life. And that's just... Those are problems that I, I feel like I don't want to, I guess, play God to mm -hmm. get. It just didn't feel like it was worth the trouble. Are you comfortable talking in more detail about the abuse that happened to you when you were a kid? I can talk about it more vaguely. I'll say that um, it was when I was young and I've since forgiven that person. Um, and I'm helping that person, you know, work through it now as an adult, which is pretty amazing. Um... And that every, I'm very vocal about it with my therapist, obviously, and with people in my life. Um, but it's not something I talk about just because I know that that person is currently struggling with that. And it took me years 
to get to this place. Um, so I know it's going to take that person a really long time because they just started this journey. I mean, I've been dealing with it since I was since I was 15 going to therapy and now I'm 35. It's amazing how stuff that how long that stuff can can last because it's like our brain will overcompensate for pain by burying and burying and burying and burying and as deep as that hole gets dug that has to be dug out <laughs> to pull that stuff back out and there's so much resistance along the way because I think our brains will do anything to tell us we weren't helpless and exploited yeah because that's such a terrifying thought because then that means we're in a world where we're powerless and open to exploitation again. And I think that's the overwhelming feeling that I get when I think about my father's death is like just how utterly unstable and unfair this world feels. And there really is like nothing. It's like it really feels random, like like someone just pointed a finger and buzzed mm -hmm. you and, and you're it. And you're the one who had to deal with it. Deal with it. What What was, and you don't have to get too specific if you if you don't want to, the verbal abuse. What What were the things that were that were said that were? Hurt, I'd rather hurtful? not get. Uh, yeah, I'd rather not get into the specifics, but the things that were said made me feel. What did it did it denigrate who you were as a person? Did it denigrate you? Was it sexist? Was it about your intelligence, your no, competence? No, no, no. What, what? That's why it was so confusing because. And we were these all different was, people that were doing these different things. Yeah, yeah. As as much as um, sounds like a neat family. <laughs> it is. You know, it's funny now. I'm assuming you is related that, to these people. I, I, is, that, is that I adore and love these people for that. But I think part of the reason why I can be that Back way. Back up. Yeah. Back up. Yes. You adore these people because they abused you? Well, because now I'm able... Because now, A, that behavior doesn't exist anymore. Oh, because they've changed. They've changed. Have they showed some contrition? They have, yes. Oh. And so so like now it's almost like um looking back at a like watching a movie <laughs> about a dysfunctional family, like a black comedy and sort of being able to laugh about it. Um and say that's my family. <laughs> Rather than, God, poor me for being in this family. It's more sort of like a throw your hands up in the air and just be like, well, that's, this is crazy, but it's what I have and it's what I, what I accept. It must be really nice to have people apologize. Yeah. And, but that also has a lot to do with me being able to say to them, you hurt me, or this is like, this is how I'm feeling. Like finally being able to come to the place where I sort of was like, this is, 
this is this is how I feel, and whether or not you choose to change or not, um, I know is out of my control. But I'm just letting you know, oh, this is how I'm feeling. Those moments were really scary because it really could have gone the way of, okay, fuck you. <laughs> uh, but luckily it didn't. It was more of a, I didn't even realize that that's what I was doing. And, you know, part of the reason why I'm... Were these boundaries that your therapist helped you set? Or were these things that just intuitively came to you? Both, I guess. My therapist never said to me, you should talk to them. It was always a choice on my part. I think what helped enormously was blogging, actually, because I air out issues on the blog and for, you know, my family members to see not only that when you air these things out, that people aren't going to shun you, that they support you and they say, that's happened to me too, or I know how you're feeling. Suddenly for them, it's, it's validation for me and also a way for them to see like, this is not, oh, I guess this is not, um, it's not so bad that you're, you're talking about it. Um, you know, for me, that was such a bonding experience for me and my father because even though I say we weren't close, he knew everything going on in my life. And that's probably the reason why I still blog, even though like sometimes I'm like, why do I still do this? It's a lot. Of, it's very time consuming. How often do you put up a new blog? Uh, I do twice a day. Yeah, that's you. Oh, that is a lot. Yeah, twice a day. And, you know, it, it's it's not something that... What is the address of it? It's theactorsdiet.com. Um it was his way of of just knowing. So you blog about more than just food. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I blog about like what I'm doing and movies I've seen, and I blog about you, like doing this podcast interview with you. I'll blog about Julius. It's just my it's just my life, and it was a way of you know not having to, you know, for for Chinese families, at least my Chinese family, they don't even really, they don't want to know like the nitty gritty of how you're feeling, but they want to know what you're doing. They want to know you're okay. And so it was a way for my dad to see like, my daughter is going to a nice restaurant tonight <laughs> and she is getting to eat a very nice dinner. Um, and that means her life is okay. And for him, that was his way of, of, of connecting to me. Um, I remember calling constantly and him being like, I'm going to put your mom on. And I'd be like, how are you, dad? And he'd be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I know what's going on with you. I read your blog. Hold on. That was how, you know, he talked to me. And so I didn't want to stop. I don't want to stop now. Because I almost feel like that's how my mom now sees what's going on with with me day to day. Sometimes it's hard to talk to her um, now because it's too much of a reminder of childhood and times that were difficult for me. And she knows that. And I can tell her that and it's kind of amazing that, um, I chalk it all up to like social media because, um, they care so much about what others think. Like that's a very, 
Chinese thing. I mean, that's the name of this movie that saving, <laughs> that face. A saving yeah. face of, of, of putting on appearances and, um, for them to see that you're, you're okay, at least, and you're there still, you're functioning is really important. Um, and it's important for me too, you know, like it holds me accountable because even though I do still allow myself to just like have days where I do nothing and sink into the depression and not feel guilty about that, I still blog twice a day, no matter what. It's, I guess it's the closest I have to a steady job, even though I'm kind of not getting paid for it. Um, it's like brushing my teeth. Aside from brushing my teeth, it's the only thing that I do daily um, and everything else in my life. Does it feel like a steam valve or just a way that you don't become invisible or both or neither? It's very confusing because it's like it it is it's therapy but at the same time it's validation uh sometimes it's harmful you know like it it always hurts when numbers go down or you ask a question and no one comments you know or something like that um but at the same time it feels weird not to do it and also there's been moments in my life where I've connected with readers that have been so meaningful that I, I know I don't want to stop f just for that. It is one of the greatest things about doing a blog or having a podcast is connecting to people, connecting to strangers, people that whose lives have such parallel moments to yours that you're like, oh, it's like... It's like your soul is getting a massage. <laughs> yeah. I think at my core, I'm somebody who likes to be a lot of different people at different times in my life. It certainly makes life more interesting. Yeah. I have a question for you, and I don't know if I'm going to wind up cutting this out or not, because it's... When you were talking about having gratitude for the arc of these people that abused you I got so jealous hmm. because I think it's almost impossible with my mom for her to to see that and I want to confront her but I'm so terrified I'm so terrified and my therapist has warned me that with such a narcissist who's so invalidating that you may just get re-traumatized all over again since she can has this ability to brush things away and say that things never happened. But part of me really wants her to know how much she hurt me and what I'm feeling. But I'm terrified. Yeah. I'm terrified. Yeah. I know exactly what you're saying, exactly what you're saying. Um, for me... I would love to have like a half dozen fellow sex abuse survivors come 
with me. I know it would be incredibly inappropriate, but I'm terrified of being alone with her, with her manipulations and her denials and her... Uh, how did How did you go back into that room with that person and summon up the courage hello we're little doggies in my lap julius isn't how did you summon up the courage to to do that i think i prepared myself mentally best i could to know that i would be disappointed i hate to compare it to this but very similar to what i do every time i'm in an audition just on a very deep, much, much, much deeper level. Oh my God. <laughs> that was a yawn. Yawning. I think it's that similar mindset of prepare for this the is, worst. Yeah, prepare for the worst. Hope for the best. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Um, and I will say this. It was neither... It was not. It was not like. Did they try to try to deny what happened or minimize it? No, no, not at all. Had you ever spoken about it with this person since it happened? Yes, yes, and it was like a lot of years of processing it. And I will say this: it was never like a. Each time I had a confrontation, it was not like I walked away from it feeling like, ah. Oh, so glad we had that talk and now things are so much better and I can go about my life. I so think it was a process. It was a long ass process that That sounds excruciating. Yeah. It it but because I didn't have that expectation that it was going to be life changing, I think it made it easier to deal with and to reconfront each time it came up. It's like any relationship where you're like confronting ongoing problems. They're not fun <laughs> to deal with those problems, but you deal with them almost because you feel like you have to. Would you always be the one that would bring the subject up? Mm, no, not always. Why would that person bring the subject up? Would it be to make an apology to you? Yeah. yeah. That must have felt good. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it would be like me playing shrink to them, you know, um, of it was this realization that, you know what, I'm okay. And I think that's part of why I, I share so much of what's going on with me is this realization that like fucked up, really fucked up shit happened. But I'm still okay. Do you think you would still be that okay if that person hadn't apologized to you? If you hadn't gotten some closure with that? Maybe not. But no. You know what? I credit a lot of it to the support system that I have of my husband and the friends that I have now that I do share this with. But also that I changed just sort of the, um, I call it the baseline. I guess it's a mantra 
um, of, of what I tell myself. Whereas growing up, it was always like, what do you know? Stupid. <laughs> um, and now it's more of like, no, you're right. And if they don't agree, you kind of don't need them or just fuck them. Um, because you have people in your life that do. So you were prepared to walk away from a relationship with that person if there had been denial or an invalidation of your experience? Yes. Or, or just to keep it going at a very uh, face level that, that it had already been. Um, what's interesting is that us talking about that didn't really change our relation. It didn't make us closer or, or deeper uh, or like make our, our experiences any, you know, more special. It just made it so that I wasn't angry, I guess. Did you, would you have a visceral reaction to that person when they were in the room with you before you had that kind of healing with them? And did that feeling of being around them change in your, in how you, how you would feel in your body? You know, that had already occurred before. That changing. That change had already occurred before. And I credit a lot of that to, um, I think that actually what, what helped me the most was telling my loved ones about what happened and having them say to me, not like, oh my God, that fucking horrible person, let's get them. Instead, it was, um, the reaction was, we will take your lead. If you want to hate that person, then we will be your army and hate that person too. But if you choose to love and embrace them, then we will do exactly the same because that was always a fear of mine was like, I don't want you to judge and hate this person because they're in my life and they're always going to be in my life. So I kind of feel like, um, if I do tell you, I need for you to back me up. And they did that. And so watching them, um, exhibit that kind of behavior made it easier for me to do it too. And eventually just forgive on that level do you until I was ready to actually talk about it. Do you think it's because it reminded you that you've got this surplus of love that you could tap into as a source of strength if you needed it? Yeah. That even if like that went away, like if I didn't have that, then I would have back I had backup that I could depend on. I didn't feel completely abandoned and alone. Cuz I think that's the thing with abuse survivors is we hide it because we're ashamed. We spend years, I don't know about you, but I blamed myself for for years. And you just kind of file it away in that. And so then when you bring it out and you re-examine it and you go, wait, I was a fucking kid. You know, I shouldn't have been put in that position. You don't blame yourself as much. But you've sat with it by yourself for so long. You forget 
that other people can connect to you, healthy people, and feed you love and support around that issue because it's been your little dark demon in the closet for years yeah. that you didn't want any light shown on because it, it either hurt so much or it was so confusing or it was so embarrassing or you didn't understand it. And I, I never, whenever I picture like confronting my mom, I never think about any support system. I never, I just always picture it as me alone by myself having to figure this all out. And it makes me kind of sad. I wonder if it's going to happen in a way that you never pictured. Does that scare you? I don't know. Because I find that that's usually how it ends up happening. I'm terrified. Yeah. And I feel so stupid for saying that. Why? Because I'm a, I've said it before on this podcast so many times, I'm a grown man. I'm 50 years old. I could beat her up if I wanted to. Why am I afraid of this person? Because she's your mom. It just makes me feel silly. It makes me feel silly. And I know intellectually I'm not supposed to feel silly. Right. But it's like, it's almost like there was a feeling put into my body that I can't take out. Yeah. Does it, do you, do you have that? Yeah. No, I, I definitely know what you mean, but I also, I guess, especially in the last decade, I've had so many experiences in my life where things, I guess I, I, I have proof. I have proof. I have proof that I can overcome anything. Not only overcome, but live beautifully, really happily for very long periods of time despite unbearable pain. So that even when I'm feeling the, that pain now, um, I, st I, I know that there's proof that, that it's going to go away. I guess it's, that's called hope, right? <laughs> um, for so long in my life, growing up, I did not have that proof. All I had was decades of pain. Um, and this ongoing, the only proof I had was like, that things were shitty, and that people leave, and that you should keep this to yourself. But if I book a job, I'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I should watch what Scarlett Johansson yeah, eats. Exactly. <laughs> well, Lynn, thank you so much. This has been... It's so funny because I never know when... Th 
the interview is is going to do this flip-flop and all of a sudden how can you know <laughs> <laughs> and i feel kind of um i get a little self-conscious when that happens but i know this is what this is how normal conversations happen yeah with people but yeah. you know going back to what you and i were talking about before we started recording is When you believe a lie for 48 years, you suddenly doubt every single thing that you think. Yeah. And you don't know. When that person's been invalidating to you, you don't know where the truth is. And so it it's really scary. It's really scary. Sitting here going, one minute going, this is this is so beautiful. I'm connecting to this person and then thinking I've just ruined this interview. I've I've um you know, I've I've made it all about me. No, but see, I think that vulnerability and that truth is the reason why you do this podcast and why people listen. I mean, a large part, and it's not the yeah. reason, but it's a large part of why. If you were just to sit and ask people and not share, then this would be a completely different show and would not be honest. You know, I suppose it's somebody who has a history of struggling with moderation is I just think to myself, oh, this is just going to be another example of something I ruined because I don't know how to moderate. I don't know how to be moderate. I don't think you ruined it, though, so (laughs) (laughs) maybe they'll be... I mean, how are you going to say anything other than than what you're saying? But thank you. Thank you for saying But I really don't. Okay. I know as somebody who creates content that sometimes that that is therapeutic, but at the same time, you you don't want to lose audience members. Um, I understand that mindset completely. But speaking to you as somebody who also does that... um, that's the reason those are the moments I've found that people connect to the most, which is why I don't think you ruined it, honestly. Okay. Well, I've just had these such strong emotions come up in the last hour and a half where I've come this close to just wanting to set the mic down and say, can we take five minutes out? Because I just need to cry. I just want to ask you for a hug and I just want to cry on your shoulder and I go back and forth between going follow that because this is this is you know maybe interesting and thinking shut up well this is such I have to admit this is like been such an honest conversation in a very like very real way of like jumping around from topic to topic i didn't expect it to be that i didn't either much i mean i've done podcast interviews mm. that are, and i've listened to your podcast so like i thought i knew what to expect but i wasn't didn't know what to expect it it's really disconcerting when you're when you're prone to second guessing yourself it's a fucking roller coaster 
it is a fucking roller coaster and it's exhausting so it's it, it can be exhilarating but it can also be really exhausting and and that's not any comment on the on the guest i think it's a credit to how vulnerable you got right out of the gate you know you had tears rolling down your face and and all of a sudden i had tears and it's like oh my god that you know my my companion in pain my friend in the foxhole this person knows what i feel yeah they knows they know what i feel yeah. which i've been looking for my my whole life <sighs> do you want to take five and <laughs> and then have a hug Can I pause it? Yeah. We just took a, a little break. Thank you. Of course. Um, oh, you know what? I didn't ask you, what does it look like when you binge eat? Give me an example of what you would consume. Oh, I, I actually blog about it in great detail so you could see, but um, it would be it would be like I would polish off uh, an entire pizza and then walk to the grocery store and be like, okay, just one more thing. I'm not going to eat the rest of the day and then like get a bag of cookies and then come home and then like sit at home feeling horrible and then two hours later going into the cupboards and opening them up and being like, oh, I'm just going to have some of the cereal and then eating the whole entire box and then going out and saying, oh, I need to replace that cereal. So I go out and buy the same cereal and then I eat half the box so that I don't show that so that my husband doesn't come and say where'd the cereal go and then and then I'm still full then my husband comes home not wanting him to know I binge I say let's go out to eat and then thinking oh you know what this is gonna be the last supper we go out and eat and I eat like another like a huge 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 meal even though you're full even or, though I'm full you're still even eating though, even I'm though still you're still eating do you yes. earth, uh, eat past the point of it hurting yeah and i used to eat to what, the point what, where i would get food poisoning like symptoms where i would throw up for days what is the feeling once you're full what is the feeling that you're after by overeating is it's, it that the, the, the taste of the food on your taste buds well first it starts off as like just a love of food and it's fun and whatever and the food tastes good and i still indulge in that side of my brain that needs that um but what it is is that i don't have a shutoff valve and I'm to the point where I'm full and then the guilt feelings that come up have a, used to have a lot to do with how I looked of you know like knowing uh, you're gonna this many calories were consumed this much many fat grams um, how am I gonna compensate for this um, but really the overlying feeling was I know this is gonna feel like crap but I know that in four days of not eating it's gonna. I'm gonna feel like I'm under control again. Mm. Like it was a predictable feeling. Like even though it felt like shit, I knew what that shit was gonna feel like. So like the 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 drunk waking up with a hangover, saying I'm I'm quitting drinking now. Yeah. Yeah. I've righted the ship. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Lynn, thank you so much for for not only being such a great guest, but for um for comforting me. <laughs> not even really knowing me except through the podcast it it you really um 
you helped me. It really helped me, and I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Many, many thanks. As many thanks as I can gather in my arms. Uh, thank you, Lynn. And, um, you know, I don't know why I apologize so much at the front of the episode. I think one of the things that makes podcasting great is it's not necessarily an interview. It's a conversation, but I'm a feared-filled, uh, fear-filled person. Getting less so, but um, welcome to the ping-pong ball in my head and the endless stream of judgments that um, are, are going on. Um, I don't really feel like listing all the ways you can support the show. Um, the show's running kind of long right now, but I do want to give a shout out to the people who help uh, keep the spammers out of the forum. John, Michael, Manny, and Dan. I, know, I don't thank you guys that often, um, but uh, thank you. Thank you so much, and so many thanks to the people who have donated to this show, especially the monthly donors. Um, you help uh, pay pay for this show, and um, I can't thank you enough. This is from the Shame and Secret. I'm just going to read two surveys, and this first one is from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Jamie. Um, she is a she writes asexual. Um, I am, quote, with a girl, but I'm sometimes uncomfortable slash unattracted to the situation. I've never been with a guy, but I think I would rather be with one. Uh, she's in her 20s. She was uh, she's never been sexually abused, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. She writes, Mom uh, has physical health slash anxiety slash depression issues that she refuses slash refused to get help for. Dad was supportive, but passed away my senior year of high school. My mom mentally abused me for as long as I can remember, but only rarely used real physical abuse. Um, I'm going to say she was frugal. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Sometimes when I'm really depressed, I want to do something crazy. I want to go where no one knows me and either cut ties with everyone, uh, try something crazy, drugs, slash overdose, or I hope that I go crazy and seclude myself from everyone. I've made countless plans that I would act on it if I was more impulsive. Uh, my other often occurring thought isn't dark, but is something I would never admit to and am sometimes ashamed to think about. I want to be ambitious and successful at what I do, but I am too afraid slash not confident in my abilities to act on it. Sometimes I suggest that I am interested in this and those who I confide in do not take me seriously. Because of this, sometimes I purposefully sabotage myself, usually by not trying, so I feel less responsible for not succeeding. I so fucking relate to that one. Um, deepest, darkest secrets. My deepest, darkest secret ties into the next question. I am involved with a girl. It just kind of happened. She made the first moves, claiming she was, quote, experimenting. I was into it at first, but after a few months of denial on her end, when I took the relationship seriously, I lost my interest. This is around the time I started taking antidepressants. I am into it in the moment, but I am not interested when I am away from her. She's kind of a mean-slash-controlling person, so that contributes. I cannot consider myself a lesbian. This has been going on for over a year, and I need to find a way for it to stop. What makes it hard is that I sometimes feel attracted in the moment. I do not feel attracted to other girls and rarely feel attracted to guys. I have messed around with guys, mostly because of my lack of confidence to say no, 
but have never been with one. I may be able to eventually accept being a lesbian if I am one, but I don't think I am. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I rarely fantasize, but I have a strange fetish for obese partners. I feel safe and aroused. In real life, I don't think I could be attracted to that long term. My current partner is obese. Sometimes I fantasize that I'm obese, but I desire the opposite when I'm depressed. I had one dream where I was part of a lesbian orgy. Powerful in the dream, not so much in real life. I enjoy giving away control more than taking it. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, I told one person about the dream, but would never admit to my fantasy. It's too personal, gross, and I am not comfortable telling anyone that. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, sometimes I feel fat. My body mass index is on the low end of overweight. If I'm in the mood to be aroused by, quote, fat, feeling fat makes me more aroused. More often, though, thinking about fantasies and such makes me ashamed and disgusted. I do not feel good about myself when I go to this place. Well, I want to thank you for that honest and heartfelt survey. And I really related to the part of it where it's just all kind of up in the air and gray and you're having trouble figuring things out. And even though our situations are different, I think we're both dealing with a mindfuck. I don't know what the hell kind of noises my dog is making back there. <laughs> I think he might be dreaming. He's either dreaming or eating his asshole like it's a bowl of pudding. Either way, it's good. Um, I'm going to take it out with, this is from the Happy Moment Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Casey. Um, she writes, about four years ago, I went to work one day and forgot my umbrella, even though I knew it was going to rain. When I left work, it was, of course, pouring. My house was a fair walk from my bus stop, so I knew I'd be cold and wet and miserable and cranky by the time I got home, and I was not looking forward to it. As my bus pulled up to the stop and I prepared myself to leave the warmth and shelter it had provided, I saw a flash of yellow in the corner of my eye, the bright yellow that could only be an umbrella. My boyfriend at the time, husband now, had noticed that I'd left the umbrella behind and was standing with it at the bus stop waiting to escort me home. After all of my anticipation of the misery of walking home, it was such a relief to see him that I almost wanted to cry from feeling so loved. It's such a small thing, but it's one of the sweetest things anyone has ever done for me. Thank you for that, Casey. And thank you guys for being so supportive of me in your emails and in the forum and when I meet you in person um, for helping me feel less crazy and less alone. Um, it's a really nice feeling. It's a really nice feeling. And if you're struggling, I hope you know that you're not alone. Christ, after listening to this episode, you, you got to be feeling good about yourself after my fucking ping pong match in my head. So just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.